this morning we are continuing our study as we've been making our way slowly but surely through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now, we have, we have talked about a number of things as we've worked our way through this. We've talked about church discipline, which everybody loved. It was the most downloaded podcast uh, of that week. <clears throat> we talked about gender roles and, and, and how that works and, and the role that women should play in church, and that's only second to, to discipline as far as favorites. But we've been working our way and talking about how God would have our church to be and how God would have us respond to his word. Now, as, as we look at these things, and, and the caveat that I offered in the beginning, so those of you who are digging the stones out of your purse to get ready to chuck at me, you'll remember that I said in the beginning, hey, there are likely going to come things that we look at and you are, you're resistant, you, you don't like the word that's used, you don't like the way it's phrased, and you say, well, you just start bristling and you automatically check out and you don't hear anything else. Check back in, okay? Check back in. We're going to see things, we're going to come across things that, that when you look at, you have some preconceived understanding or some idea because of what you've heard in the past. But what we have to be faithful to, I have to be faithful to as your pastor, and we have to be faithful as a gathered body of Jesus Christ, is to have a church that reflects the God's word. Amen? Amen. This morning we're going to talk about a five-letter word that is, that is wildly unpopular in, in some Baptist settings, in Ridgecrest specifically. We're going to talk about the word elder. right? Now you say, you say elder to people and they say, man, there are a lot of four-letter words I wouldn't mind hearing, but if you would please not utter that in my, in, in my presence, that would really save me a lot of heartache and a lot of, a lot of heartburn, and I just can't afford to buy any more Maalox uh, Pepto-Bismol or, or whatever it is you take to quell the heartburn. Well, see, Paul, he's taking us into this discussion. And what we're going to talk about this week are elders, overseers, pastors. And what we're going to talk about in two weeks are deacons. Now, you remember this, we studied Philippians. When Paul opens up Philippians and he says, I'm writing and I'm writing to who? He said, to the, to the overseers and to the deacons. And so he seems to divide church offices in two ways. He says we've got the deacons, and we're going to talk about them in a couple of weeks and what their role is. They're not administrators. They're not the ones you know, counting all the money, and they're not the ones doing all of this type of thing. They're doing, they're acting in accordance with how you define their name. If you were to look in a, a lexicon, a Greek lexicon, a dictionary, and you would flip over to the word diakonos, you know what you'd find? You'd find the word servant rendered in English. You'd find the word servant rendered in English. But when we come to this discussion of pastor, elder, overseer, it is clouded in some ways because in Baptist circles, somebody says, who is the, what, pastor of your church? Do you like your pastor? Very, you know, seldom. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, so you must be the overseer at Ridgecrest Baptist Church. <clears throat> I'd say, absolutely. That's how I sign everything. Matt Beasley, Overseers Incorporated. But what we see is that throughout the New Testament, we see this, these twin terms used, overseer and elder. In the Greek, it's episkopos and presbyteros, or presbyteros, depending on where you want to put the emphasis. But we see these twin terms used. Now, there has been a great deal of, of discussion and debate as to 
do these things mean the same things, or are they describing different offices? And quickly this morning, if we flip over to 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, we see Peter use all three terms. He uses the word presbyteros, or, or elder, then he uses the verb form of overseer, and just to really muddy the waters, he also uses the word pastor in the verb form. 5, 1 and 2, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, pastor, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, overseer, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. See, we see this idea that he's talking about the same thing, whether he's saying the word overseer, whether he's using the word elder, which, which really rubs certain people the wrong way, or whether he's talking about pastor, and he's drawing in this idea that's talking about shepherding the flock. Over and over in the book of James and elsewhere, we see this idea that the pastor as shepherd, right? And so he's working with the sheep. It says, the sheep know his voice, speaking of Jesus, and, and we see this idea that the church is thought of as sheep. Now, that's not a glowing metaphor. That's not a really prized thing, and somebody says, what are you? You're like, man, I am a sheep! And you're like, oh, I don't, I don't think you know what that means. I mean, sheep aren't particularly thought of as the smartest animal at the farm. They're not the pig, which is a good thing, right? But the sheep aren't thought of as the smartest, most ingenuitive, self-starting animal on the farm. This is not, you know, it's not bringing you down. I, di I didn't say that, but, but when we see this idea of sheep, we tend to make decisions together. We tend to flock together, but we have to have some type of order. So we see this, dis this discussion that that for today, I'm just going to use the word elder because if I have to say overseer, elder, pastor, every time I bring this point, it's going to become cumbersome, okay? So elder is the word that I'll use today. So getting back to 1 Timothy, we see that Paul is writing, and he's already talked about church discipline. He has talked about gender roles, and now he moves into this discussion on the qualifications of an elder, the qualifications of one who would seek to, to teach. And he says, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 7, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his, own, keep his household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so as we look at this, it's, it's roughly 15 modifiers that, that an elder has to have. 15 
adjectives used to describe this person who would be pastor. Now, this is strange for me, right? Because I am, for all intents and purposes, functioning as an elder here at RBC. And I'm here to tell you what my qualification should be. Now, this in some ways is, you know, the cart before the horse type thing where this is what the pastor search team, you know, if, if you guys were going to reconstitute yourselves and come together, this would be a good list of things to look at. I'm already here. Um, so that gets awkward to talk about reconstituting the team and getting the band back together. So let's not, let's not do that. My wife laughs especially. We just moved into the house. We like the neighborhood. Anyway, and so this, there's this list of <clears throat> 15 adjectives, and that's, that's what the way commentators describe it. There's 15 things that this, this man needs to have present in his life. But they overlook something. You see, there are really 16 things because that presupposes that they have aspirations of holding that office. Paul writes and he says, hey, look, if anyone aspires, if anybody has this heart desire from God to serve as an elder. If anyone, as they live in their Christian life, and this presupposes they have all these other things, that he said, if they have a desire to have this, and then Paul, he, he tells us, he said, that is a noble, that is a good thing. Man, it is, it is good to have a desire to be an elder, to be a pastor. It's not good to crave, to have a desire to stand in front of people and, and, and to, to be able to spill information to them, though. You see, because you remember that Paul was talking about those that were, were putting forth the heresy there in Ephesus. And what did he say about them? What curious thing did Paul say about these people that were caught up with myths and endless genealogies? Paul wrote about these people and he said, these people desire to be known as teachers of the law. See, that's what they wanted. They wanted to stand up in front of people and, and just pour out and say, listen to me, listen to me. This is what you need to do. Listen to me, listen to me. This is how you need to live your lives. Listen to me, listen to me. This is what you need to do. Man, that's, that's what they wanted their job to be. They wanted to be those that would stand in front of people and tell them, this is what you need to do. But how did Paul describe them? Talking about these people that wanted to stand up in front of others and tell them you needed to be this way, you needed to do these things. See, in verse 7 of chapter 1, he said, desiring to be teachers of the law, he says, they are without understanding, either the things they say or about those things in which they make confident assertions. See, what we see in Ephesus is there's a whole host of people that want to be recognized. And there is a whole host of people that want to stand up and have somebody recognize them as one who has wisdom, as one who instructs. And Paul looks at them and says, man, they don't even know what they're talking about. They are senseless, and you shouldn't follow them. So it's instructive that here he turns and he says, hey, look, it's not, it's not that you shouldn't want to be an elder, be an overseer. It's that your craving should not be this fleshly desire to have people give you respect, this fleshly desire to have people look at you and think that there is something special about you simply because of the office you hold. 
You see, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the, over, to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he moves to give us 15 different qualifications for the one who would be elder. He says, this person must be above reproach. Now, this is a catch-all term that you could really shove the next 14 inside of. Because if you're above reproach, then you've got all of the other things satisfied. Amen? That was, that was like base level easy. I mean, this is family Sunday, and I, I saw five kids say, amen. They have small high-pitched voices, so many of us didn't hear them. But let me try that again. If someone were to have and be above reproach, that would seem to combine all 14 of these things. Amen? amen. Man. It doesn't say commands attention well, and so that's, that's a good thing. Anyway, so they must be above reproach. This person, when you, when you think about them and think about their lifestyle, you shouldn't be floating around all these, all these thoughts about, well, man, really? He, <laughs> he's the elder? I mean, the, the initial thought that comes to mind when they say, well, hey, look, we want to put forward this person to be our elder. We shouldn't have five people that automatically stand up and be like, look, I heard you say Matt Beasley, but, 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 Surely, it's not this guy. Now, you, you think that, well, this wouldn't be a big deal. Man, I, I spoke at a church in the woodlands. I went down, it was this mega church down in the woodlands, and I spoke for their youth. I went down three weeks in a row. And in the first week I went down there, you know, they had they blitzed out, they would advertised my name, you know, coming next week, Matt Beasley. And when I showed up, people were like, hey, have you seen Matt Beasley? And I was like, wow. Last time I looked in the mirror, um, when I looked down, I see him everywhere. It's, it's a little bit creepy. I feel like he's following me. And they're like, no, no, the Matt Beasley that's speaking tonight. And I was like, well, uh, I, I'm the one speaking tonight. And they said, oh, man, that is such a relief because there's this other guy, Matt Beasley, that lives in this community, and he is awful. And we saw that name, and we thought, why in the world would they have this guy speak? If you ever get an afternoon, you don't have a whole lot going on, Google Matt Beasley. There's some truly heinous and funny stuff out there. It, very little of it is me. And so this idea that this person must be above reproach. Man, when you think about them, when you look at their lives and you talk to their friends, when you talk to their family, when you talk to their, their coworkers, when you look into them, no red flags that are substantiated immediately jump out. Now, this isn't saying that everybody's going to love this person. This isn't saying that everybody, when they say, hey, do you know Matt Beasley? And people say, oh, he's the greatest guy you know, I've ever met. And it becomes readily apparent that I've paid a number of people to say that exact phrase. But it's this idea that when you hear of this person, when you investigate their life, when you talk to their family and all those who know them well, the overwhelming report is that this person doesn't have any skeletons hiding in the closet. The overwhelming report is this person is a dedicated and diligent follower of Christ. It says they must be above reproach. This, this next phrase we come to, and I think the NLT renders it really, really well. In the Greek, it is, it is literally one woman man. It is three words. In the ESV, it's rendered the husband of one wife. Now this this expression here has, has run roughshod over the church for a long time because people have, have parsed it out. 
I know growing up in Baptist churches, the way I heard this reported over and over again is if you want to be pastor, you cannot be divorced. I mean, that's just how this was reported. If you want to be pastor, if you want to be an elder, you cannot be divorced. And then they just moved on to the next thing. But as we look at this, Paul would have had to choose the most difficult way almost imaginable to conceive, to to report that to us. If he wanted to talk about divorce when he so clearly addressed divorce in 1 Corinthians, why in the world would he use this awkward construction? He's not talking about divorce. So there are others that read it and they say, Paul is talking about polygamy. Problem solved. There was a huge problem with polygamy in Ephesus, they say. Well, when you, when you look at the documents and you do a little bit of research in that, you're like, well, that's, that's not really the case. We find just a couple reports of polygamy present in that church. And say you even want to go there and you believe these couple of documents. You see, the problem with that is in 5.9, we find the opposite construction of widows. And we find no cases, no cases of women having multiple husbands in the first century. You see, because in 5.9, what here we see as one woman man, there we see as one man woman. If the grid whereby you interpret is one way here, it has to be, it necessarily is the same way there. It is not a reference to polygamy. So the question then becomes, what is it? Does the person have to be married? Does the person have to have a, a living spouse? Maybe that's the way you go. And so you think about the sacrificial system. Do you know that the high priest, whenever he got ready to go in on on Yom Kippur, when you read the text, it talks about that he is married, right? And so being those that want to hold to ritual, being those that want to hold to the letter of the law, they read that and said, look, high priest has got to be married. If something happens, his wife has a brain aneurysm in the night. We need a backup. And so what they would do is they would squirrel this woman away over here, they're like, look, you're not married, right? Okay, you are our backup wife for the high priest. And so they would keep her over there just in case something happened to the high priest's wife. Well, that, that's not what we see here either. But what makes good sense? Especially in light of what Paul is going to talk about in verses 4 and 5. He's talking about devotion. Man, he's talking about devotion. You see, many men... They, they invalidate their aspirations of holding the office of overseer, of being an elder, not because they're divorced, but because they are functionally living out divorce in their lives. Man, you spend time with, with this particular husband and wife that is living out a functional divorce in their lives, and there is no intimacy between these two. Man, there is no deep love in him for her and no deep love in her for him. They're not coming together. You see, he he treasures his marriage vows, but he does not treasure his spouse. So this is the type of person we see that, that ends up playing in pornography. This is the type of person that we end up thinking that is not important to daily treasure their spouse, to invest themselves in their spouse. Because for this person, and and too often in the church, what we hear people say is that, I will never get divorced. I think divorce is a sin. But what they fail to realize 
is the way they treat their spouse currently is a sin. Sadly, too many people, if you look at the state of their marriages and too many ministers I've known, if you look at the state of their marriages, are already disqualifying themselves because they are not a one-woman man. Because they don't treasure their spouse, they don't love their spouse in, 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 in a way that the gospel commands them to love them. The way that Paul refers to us in Ephesians, that you would lay down your life for your spouse. They look at it as... as is something of convenience, of something as, as long as I don't get divorced. And then when it comes to their eyes, when it comes to their heart, they practice the thought of, I can look, but not touch. See, marriage is vitally important to God. And this isn't something solely for those who would seek to be pastor. See, this, this list that Paul puts together isn't something unique just to pastors. But this is something that every man and every woman should seek to emulate, should seek to have in their lives. There should only be one for you. You should love your spouse with, with a deep and undying love and hold them with a deep and undying respect. This person needs to be the husband of one wife. Paul writes next and he says they need to be sober-minded. And this is understood best as we look at the next Next word, they need to practice self-control. Now, when I, when I think of sober-minded, and maybe your translation says temperate, it's, it's best understood, I think, when we think of what is the opposite of this. When we understand its antonym and we illustrate its antonym. I, I don't know how many of you have spent much time around drunk people. Living in, living in Central Europe, and then I spent three months in Budapest one summer, and I was telling Carol B. this morning that, that I remember going to, the, going to the gas station early in the morning or going out to, to a mission assignment at like 6, 6.30. And right beside the register where you go to check out, where in the U.S. you'd see you know, five-hour five hour energy, you know, Wrigley's gum, and, and all the other sundry things that you don't need, there were bottles of absolute vodka right there, right beside the checkout of where you would go to pay for your gas. I remember one morning going to a, to a mission site. We were going to work with this new church plant outside of Budapest. And it was, I mean, 6 in the morning, 6.30 at the latest, walking down into the metro, and I see this guy cracking open the bottle. And you see, he was so given to living life out of control that he was dependent upon alcohol. And so when we think about someone that is to live their lives being sober-minded, this person needs to exercise self-control. They're not given to, to flights of fancy. They're able to stay the course. This person isn't, isn't tossed by strong winds and currents. See, we see this in, in, in men, especially, that, that every time they hear about something good or something exciting, they automatically move that way. Oh, we can, we can do membership this way. Oh, man, oh, i got to go back to this side. This is so much better. This is getting so many more people. And they're making decisions based upon the currents that they feel moving around them. You see, they're making decisions based upon what they think is most popular, based upon what they think is going to get the best response, but they are not exercising self-control, and they're not finding themselves in submission to the Word of God as the utmost authority in their lives. This person is to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Next, we see that this person is to be respectable. This is to be a person that you would be able to respect. 
the interesting thing is that we see this same word used when Paul was describing the way that women should dress. He said that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel. And you remember that the ultimate end of his argument is that they need to adorn themselves with good works. Just as women are meant to portray themselves by their good works and not their, their flashy adornment, costly attire, gold, and pearls, these men are meant to be respectable, worthy of respect. Somebody that you look at and you think, man, I can respect them. Somebody that you look at and say, I can look up to them. I can tell my children, this is the type of person who is living out Jesus in their lives. This is a concrete example of somebody who is taking everything a hold for the gospel. This is the type of person we want our kids to model themselves after. Somebody who is respectable. It's interesting that in this list of things, Paul next tells us that this person is to be hospitable. This person is to be hospitable. If you were to parse out this word, you'd see that it means that they love strangers. This person loves strangers. This person is found having people in their home. This person doesn't, doesn't look at their job and say that, man, I work from this time to this time. My home life is my home life. You stay out of that, and, and, and this is just me. This is my private bubble. You cannot come in. This person isn't closed off from those around them, but they are invested in the lives of those they encounter. Man, this person is is open. This person finds themselves living alongside others in community. And then what we get to, this person is able to teach. See, Paul brings this idea back up again in 5.17, but this person is able to to teach. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't write this person is a, a gifted rhetorician. See, there are a number of things Paul could have said if he wanted to qualify the teaching that this person offers. But he uses one word, he says this person must be able to teach. You see, oftentimes when churches come together and they look for someone to lead, they, they ask them questions, they say, we want somebody who is just a wonderful manager. We want somebody who can come in and just, by nature of their personality, attract a crowd. We want flash. We want bang. We want somebody who can come in and be, be absolutely dynamic. I don't really care if the person can teach. Can you open up the Bible? Can you read these things? And they don't investigate, is this person able to rightly parse and understand the Word of God. And friends, the only authority a pastor has is founded in the Word of God. And so if he is not able to teach, if you have been to a church where someone is not able to teach, it is a painful experience. Not just because it's boring, but because that person is being asked to exercise an office they are not qualified to hold. They need to be able to teach. And Paul gets in, he says, this person should not be a drunkard. Your translation might say they're not given to much wine. That's because this, this word here has the, the root word for wine in it. They're not a drunkard. This isn't a person whose lust and desire for alcohol consumes the very fiber of their being. This is not Paul writing and saying this person should not consume alcohol, but instead he is saying that alcohol should not consume this person. Do you catch the distinction there? 
Because if he's saying that you should not consume alcohol, then what he's going to tell Timothy in just a few short verses is going to run contrary to what he's advocating here. Paul says that this person should not be a drunkard. And he, he, he pairs with it this idea that the person should not be violent, which is especially appropriate given that many times when people consume too much alcohol, they end up acting out of self-control and in violence and taking it out on those around them. This person should not be violent. They're not given to, as the word picture we see here, using their fists to accomplish their end. He says this person should be gentle, not quarrelsome. Now this is interesting. They, they should be d- gentle. They should be able to approach people in, in diffuse situations. Instead of just coming into situations and seeing them only get worse as a result of having this person in them. Well, you know, you, you can imagine if a situation had got bad, we've got a, a member that's particularly disgruntled about something, and somebody says, look, I don't care who we call, but if we call the pastor, this thing's going to explode. That guy, I mean, he just, it's like he's never heard the expression, you need to handle them with kid gloves, okay? And so we've got an angry member over here that's angry about, I don't know, color of carpet, you know, that nobody complimented her eyeshadow, nobody complimented his new wallet or boots or whatever things people get upset about. If that's you, um, the eyeshadow looks great. I love those boots. And <laughs> this carpet's been here for 25 years, so you can, you can blame somebody else. This person is so upset. See, this, this person who's functioning as an elder should be able to come into this situation and, and interact with this person in such a way that doesn't automatically drive them to greater anger, to greater frustration. See, something I didn't, didn't take into account is that, is that ministers end up spending some of their time, not the majority of their time, but some of their time diffusing situations. But man, isn't that life as family? If any of you grew up with brothers and sisters and you lived your whole life and said, we never fought once, I'm going to call you a liar. Or, you know, they're like 30 years older than you and they just thought of you as the one of their own. But siblings disagree. Siblings fight. We've got to be able to work through those differences. We've got to be able to work through our disagreement. This is not quarrelsome. Now, we need to offer a caveat on this doesn't paint the idea that, that a minister, that an elder never disagrees. What they do is they don't look for situations to stir up anxiety, to stir up frustrations in the church. What they are is an ambassador of God's Word. Now, when they encounter sin in the lives of the community, when they encounter sin in the lives of their members, I mean, that's going to lead to some quarrels. That's going to lead to some disagreements. That's going to lead to to saying, hey, look, you have this sin manifest in your life, and it's it's causing disunity in the body. And you need to confess that. You need to repent that behavior, and you need to help us continue to have godly fellowship here at this church. Perfect scenario, the person takes that word, they change their life, and we see fellowship restored. But too often, we see that that doesn't happen, that don't happen. Too often we see that, that the person is sought out or, or more likely just we hope it's just going to go away. Time will heal all wounds. 
See, just as we talked about in church discipline, one of the calls of an elder is to seek out and seek to bring back into harmony the body. And that is going to mean stepping into the middle of some pretty contentious situations. He says this person is not a lover of money. This person is not a lover of money. Paul, writing on this same subject later in the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, said, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's making the argument. And at one point he says, he said, Godliness is great gain when balanced with contentment. But we see some in Ephesus that have seen godliness and and, and the guise of godliness in some ways as as a means to an end, as a means to provide them with money. And man, if you, you have TV, you see this on there, you see ministers that say, look, if you'll just send me your donation, I will pray for you. If you'll send me your donation, I've, I've got some, some bath water that I'm going to pray over, and I will send that to you, and you will get my blessing if you give me money. And they tie the blessing they'll extend, which isn't even theirs to give, with the money that you have. Man, that's heresy. This person should not be consumed with the love of money. And moving into 4 and 5, we see that Paul moves into this beautiful illustration of the household. Paul writes, he says, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he care for God's church? Now, I think one of the first things I told the, the pastor search team when, when we begin to have these discussions is that I am not willing to jeopardize my family for the sake of this church. I've only got one family. I won't invalidate my, my role as pastor in this church by neglecting my family. I'm just not willing to do it. See, when I look at my my upbringing and I look at those, those men that have been pastor to me, that have been elder to me, I recognize in a couple of them that they cared more for the church than they did their own families. I think of one of the pastors I had that had had two children out of four abandon the faith. His oldest son just completely walked away from the faith, and his next son, who is my age, who I sat and memorized scripture with, who we attended Bible study together, also abandoned the faith. I mean, he just walked away, just washed his hands with it, said, I'm done. I think of my hometown whose, whose own pastor's son beat a man to death with a baseball bat. And you could say that, that, it is, that it is on me to care and to minister to my family, to love my wife, to be a one-woman man, to minister to my children, to Bryce and to Graham. And so then there are those that take it too far, though. I say that any minister whose children are not saved and violates his, his role as pastor. He, he eliminates himself from the ability to be an elder. And more often than not, they go to Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
You see, this is just a really bad understanding of Scripture. Just as when we read through the Psalms, we have an understanding that it is poetry, and everything in there is not to be taken in a literal sense. So too, when we read through Proverbs, we understand that we are reading things which are truisms. These are wisdom sayings. The author of Proverbs could have said, more often than not, when you invest yourself in your family, more often than not, when you train your child up in the way he should go, and you model that before them, when they get old, they won't depart from it. But family after family that I meet with tells me this. What did I do wrong? Or ask me this. What did I do wrong? My husband and I loved each other. I always took our children to church. We lived as vibrant of a testimony as we knew how before our children. But yet, not all of them know Jesus. Man, that's a difficult question. See, there's no guarantee that as we pour out our lives into our children, that as we beg and we plead and we desire earnestly, often, that they would know Jesus. There's no guarantee that they will. But the call of an elder is to find himself invested in the life of his family. And then Paul hinges it and he says, this is why. Because the person we don't see invested in their family, the person we see that the husband and wife don't get along, that his children don't respect him, that they're not sub under submission to him, how will this person work in the church? Man, because if he can't exist with his family, people that he spends way more time with than he will with you, if his own family don't respect him, How's he going to work in the church? And so we see that you could remove your ability to be an elder by neglecting your family. And then finally, Paul moves into the last two. He says first that he must not be a recent convert. And he gives us the reason. He says if he's a recent convert, he could become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. You'll remember that the devil's primary sin was one of pride. One of pride. He thought too highly of himself. You see that somebody who is new to the faith is, is full of excitement, is full of energy. And man, they just, if you gave them a, a handheld water pistol and you said, hell's that way, they would be moving out the door, probably without even remembering to fill it up with water. I mean, this is the type of excitement, exuberance that this person has. They want to do something for God. And if you told them you could extinguish some fires of hell with this water pistol, they would say, point me in the right direction. Or maybe wrong direction, it's hell. I don't know. <clears throat> anyway, and so they would, they would be all for it. And so if you were to go to this person and say, look, recent, recent Christian, recent convert, how do you feel about preaching and teaching? You seem to be pretty jazzed up about Jesus right now. See, man, this person has all the excitement. They have all of the joy in the world. But they're about this deep. And so they get into the throes of the pastorate. They get into the throes of being an elder. And people begin to compliment them. And people begin to talk about how good they are at what they do. And they begin to treasure and value the comments from the well-wishers more than they do their submission to Jesus. And they become puffed up and they fall for pride. 
And then Paul writes, he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You see, it's not just us. It's not just, it's not just me coming to you and, and hoping that, that you think good thoughts of me, hoping that, that you hold me in high regard, hoping that I'm able to maintain a respectable life before you. But it's this idea that as, as an elder, as, as a pastor of this church, that people on the outside, they look at me and they identify in some ways the health of this body by the character of my life. So we find in men that, that are elders that their churches, whether they want it to or not, are identified by their own character. Man, this is a this is a heavy thing. That as I've sat here in my office this week and worked through this and, and reflected on this, and every time I look in the mirror and I, and I think, man, these things have to be evident in my life. And I'm evaluating my heart. I'm asking God to reveal my heart to me. I'm asking God to show me, are these things true in me? Are these things true in me? And it's this absolutely gut-riching thing to see God continue to pull back the layers of your life through the process of sanctification where he continues to reveal to you the next stage of spiritual growth. You see, but as Christians, that is what we come to. That as we seek to live lives that measure up to the Word of God, that there is never a level of completion. And see, as I read this this week, the, the overwhelming thought is that I should stand before you and, and say, are you praying for me? Do you pray that I wouldn't be puffed up with pride? Do you pray that I would love my, my wife well? Do you pray that I would love my children well? Do you pray that I would manage my time well? Do you pray that I wouldn't be drawn away from the love of money? Do you pray these things for me? See, that's how you work in conjunction with this. That as the body, you are praying for the one. In, in our case, you are praying for me. So I feel led to ask you this. Are you praying for me? Are you praying for those other members of our staff that hold similar responsibilities? And for those of you visiting, are you praying for your staff? Are you praying for your pastors, for your elders? It is a difficult thing. It is a challenging thing. And it is a gut-wrenching thing. But you might ask the question, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a member here. I'm not particularly fond of Jesus. I don't even know him. What is the point of all this for me? How does that work for me? See, as you look at this list of, of 15 characteristics of attributes of adjectives that describe the man that God desires to pastor a church, you have this understanding that, that God takes great care in laying down instruction for the one that would, he would lead to the church. That God takes great care and deliberation in coming up 
with this list of attributes and characteristics for the man that he would seek to have impart the Word of God to you. And as much care and as much deliberation as God puts into crafting this list of things that the man who is the elder of the church that you attend should have in his life, it pales in comparison with the amount of care and deliberation he put into giving his son for the redemption of humanity. You see, as a Christian, you live your life seeking to bring everything under submission of Christ. And you recognize, as we studied in Philippians, that Christ himself brought himself under the submission of the Father, that he gave his life as a sacrifice, that he lovingly laid down his life so that we might know him. He lovingly laid down his life, offered his perfect life as a sacrifice for the sins that you and that I commit. That's how you fit in this. And that you would confess, if you would believe those things and if you would confess your sin and confess that you are a sinner, that God would radically save you, that he would radically transfer you, as Paul writes, from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. As we continue to look at what a church should be, we come to this understanding that God is asking each of us to play a role in church. There are responsibilities for the body. There are responsibilities for the deacons. And there's a special responsibility for the one who would be elder. Let me pray for us.